everyone. Welcome to episode 27 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast with me, your host, Alex Murray. So this week, we'll be doing the usual round of CVEs and vulnerabilities and package updates that have been fixed by the security team. We've got uh, yeah, a fair bit to cover this week. There's Dovecot, uh, Policy Kit, BusyBox, uh, the Kernel, which we've got a fair bit there, and of course, uh, the Apache uh, web server for the Carpe DM vulnerability. Plus, Joe and I are going to have a chat about supply chain attacks with the recent Asus Shadowhammer discovery via Kaspersky. Okay, let's get into it. So this week, there were 52 unique CVEs that have been addressed across the supported Ubuntu releases. I'm going to start with Dovecot. So there was one CVE here that was fixed uh, for trusty Xenil, Bionic, and Cosmic. So this was a a local user root privilege escalation vulnerability. Essentially, there was a stack buffer overflow uh, where the index of worker processes were missing a bounds check when they would copy data from the index. And this would then mean that if you could uh, corrupt the index or you could you know, insert uh, particular malicious records into the index as a local user, you would be able to leverage that for eventual code execution in the indexer process, uh, which you know, is often done as root. So that's been fixed for Dovecot. We've got an update for Firebird, uh, the relational database. So two CVEs here that were addressed for Trusty. Uh, one where remote authenticated users would be able to uh, perform code execution and another one where unauthenticated users could perform a, a denial of service via uh, sending an op response action with a non-empty status and cause uh, Firebird to crash. So they've both been fixed as well. So back in episode 23, I was talking about a vulnerability in PolicyKit where it would use uh, the start time of the process plus the process ID to be able to identify that for subsequent actions that might be asked to be authorized by PolicyKit. And Jan Horn from Google Project Zero had discovered that that would be able to be uh, essentially bypassed because the start time of a process was able to be influenced by uh, an attacker essentially. And so back there, we talked about how we had updated the kernel to account for that to make the start time more atomic. So we've now got an update for policy kit itself for the same uh, vulnerability. We've updated it here uh, so that it will also check the user ID, not just the start time and the process ID when comparing processes. So this would then mean that you know, it's a lot harder for one user to essentially masquerade as another, even without that kernel fix. So yeah, that's been fixed for PolicyKit in Trusty, Xenial, Bionic, and Cosmic. We've got an update, as I mentioned in the intro, for BusyBox. So this is the kind of uh, you know, all-purpose utility often used on various embedded platforms and that kind of thing, providing both you know a shell, but also you know things like a secure SSH client or even utilities like wget and and that kind of thing. So a fair bit of code uh, all in BusyBox where you can compile you know various modules or not. And in Ubuntu, we enable things like the DHCP client and server uh, or, you know, the wget utility, like I said, and even the ability to do module loading and that kind of thing. And so each of these has a number of different vulnerabilities that have been fixed. In fact, 10 CVEs have been addressed across Trusty Xenil, Bionic and Cosmic. Uh, so within the DHCP kind of client server part of the code, uh, we fixed an information disclosure uh, where it would essentially disclose stack memory uh, when that was uh, sent back as a response for various DHCP option handling. And so that's been fixed. Uh, there's also a heat buffer overflow uh, in the parsing of various DHCP options that was able to be triggered remotely that's been fixed. And finally, an integer overflow that would lead to a heat-based buffer uh, out-of-bounds write 
therefore likely leading to a crash and as a result of denial of service but because you can potentially corrupt the heap or heap metadata you know you might be able to get code execution as well as a result so yeah that's been fixed too we've also fixed a uh, heap buffer overflow similar one in wget and it's part of busybox uh, there's another issue here where uh, the shell component when doing tab completion could allow uh, essentially code execution because it wouldn't sanitize file names. And so you could inject things like, you know, shell control characters and that kind of stuff. I guess the problem there is, you know, if as a standard user, you can create uh, certain file names that would be able to trigger this, then say a root user who is doing a directory listing would get hit by, uh, you know, your, your thing and you could execute code in their context. So yeah, that's been fixed. There's a couple of different uh, issues in the inbuilt archive handling. So BusyBox is able to handle things like uh, BZIP2 archives or um, zip, zip files, that kind of stuff. And so we're fixing an integer overflow when decompressing uh, malicious BZIP2 uh, archives, which would lead to an out-of-bounds write resulting in you know, crash denial of service, but possible code execution. Uh, there was also a point of misuse when decompressing zip files Again, in this case, leading to an out-of-bounds read and likely crash denial of service. Finally, uh, our own uh, Tyler Hicks from the Ubuntu kernel team uh, discovered a directory traversal vulnerability which could be triggered uh, if you were to include symlinks within a, a particular tar archive that would allow you know, to do things like writing outside the current working directory when decompressing that tar archive. So that's been fixed as well. And the module loading part of BusyBox as well, so essentially the mod probe implementation within BusyBox, worked where, um, or the way that it would work was it would look at the uh, file name that was asked to be loaded as a module and run base name on that. So you could you know, point it at an actual you know, path to a kernel object, a kernel module to be loaded and it would uh, load that. But you could also use that then to circumvent various name checks against particular modules that were kind of blacklisted to not be able to be loaded easily. And so that's been fixed too. Okay, this brings us to the update for uh, the Apache web server. So uh, six EVs here that we've fixed for Trusty, Xenil, Bionic, and Cosmic. Uh, the big one here that got a fair bit of press coverage was uh, named Carpe Diem because as everyone knows, if you want your vulnerability to have any kind of lifetime or uh, knowledge of it, a CVE identifier is not enough. It needs to have a special name. In this case, Carpedium was a local root privilege escalation uh, due to an out-of-bounds array access, which would then result in an arbitrary function call when Apache would gracefully restart. Uh, Apache out of the box is configured uh, to do this via log rotate uh, at 6.25 a.m. each day to make sure that you know, its logs aren't taking up all of your log space. So, you know, if there is this automatic trigger that would be able to trigger this, then the question is how do we actually make the vulnerability work? So this affected both uh, mod prefork, mod worker, and mod event within Apache. And essentially the way it worked uh, was that, you know, the main server, which is running as root, would share a uh, shared memory segment with a number of low privileged worker processes. And in this case, it was called the scoreboard, uh, this area of memory. And the idea of this is that this allows the uh, low privileged processes to share back with the server, uh, the main server process, which is running as root, you know, things like their process ID or the last request that they'd handled, that kind of thing. And so they each have access to this shared memory segment and they can write to it and, you know, share this information back to uh, the privileged parent. 
Also, part of the information that's stored there is uh, an index into a global array within the parent itself. So it would set up that index. Uh, but the problem is that the uh, that's this unprivileged child would be able to change that index. And this index gets uh, used to look into a global array, which is called the buckets array. Uh, and that contains function pointers as to you know what kind of function to run to initialize uh, when restarting that worker. So yeah, as you can see, uh, the child can uh, manipulate that uh, bucket index so that you can you know, point to somewhere else in memory. And in particular, it could point back at the uh, scoreboard, the shared memory segment that it uh, shares with the parent. And within that then is meant to be a function pointer, which is used when restarting uh, the worker. And so it could make that function pointer point to wherever it felt like and therefore get essentially code execution within the context of the privileged root uh, user parent process uh, by just modifying both the uh, bucket index and then this function pointer as well. Uh, so, you know, this is a local root privilege escalation because in general you can't leverage this remotely unless, say, you were to chain it together with another vulnerability. So often, you know, Apache is installed with PHP. So if you're able to, say, find some uh, PHP remote vulnerability, you may be able to leverage that into a remote exploit as well. So that's been fixed, uh, which is great. Uh, plus five other CVEs, like I mentioned. Uh, these were things like a failure to normalize URLs in a consistent manner, which would mean that uh, location match or rewrite rule directives might not get applied correctly. So that's been fixed. There was also a race condition in mod auth digest that could allow a user with valid credentials to impersonate another user by essentially you know, authenticating as themselves, but then uh, changing the username so it would then race and the result would end up looking like it was for the other user and therefore bypass access controls to act as that other user. Uh, there was a read after free on a string comparison in mod HTTP2, which would result in a crash and therefore denial of service. There was a failure to respect the session expiry time in mod session cookie that's been fixed as well. And finally, a denial of service via a slow Loris type attack where you could essentially occupy a heap of different server threads based on how you responded back to those, uh, those worker processes. So they've all been fixed for the Apache web server. Finally, uh, we've got an update here for advanced comp. Uh, one CVE here that was fixed for trusty Xenu, Bionic, and Cosmic, uh, which was just an integer overflow when decompressing invalid PNG images, which would result in an out-of-bounds write and uh, also a possible heap uh, out-of-bounds buffer read as well. So that's been fixed. That takes us to the kernel updates that have been done for this cycle. So the kernel team has been hard at work doing a heap of different updates here. So I've got uh, yeah, a huge number of CVEs here to cover and I will try to do that relatively briefly. Uh, we've got an update for the kernel package in Cosmic and therefore the hardware enablement kernel, that's the Cosmic kernel backported for Bionic as well. They both share the same kernel sources. 13 CVEs here that were fixed for those. Uh, in particular, Jan Horn has been quite busy, as always, from Google Project Zero. Uh, he's got a number of these against his name. Uh, there was an MMAP minimum address bypass. So when you dereference a null pointer, you're essentially saying execute this code at address zero, which you know, in general points nowhere, and therefore there's nothing in the kernel oopses, and you know your process dies. But uh, if you could map some you know, executable memory at address zero, you could turn that into a code execution attack. And uh, in general, the kernel tries to prevent against this by making sure that nothing uh, can be mapped below what is called the MMAP minimum address. So this might be uh, you know, 4K, one page or something like that to make sure that that last page can never have anything mapped at it. 
Uh, in this case, you know, there was a code path that uh, Yarn was able to find where you could map a page of memory at that address. And therefore you could turn again, a null pointer dereference into a code execution attack. So that's been fixed. He also found uh, an issue where there were missing length checks when uh, decoding various uh, SNMP NAT uh, attributes, and that's all done through ASN1, which is a pretty complicated uh, encoding format. Uh, and this would lead to an out of bounds uh, read or write. Uh, so, you know, the kind of thing that would lead to a denial of service through a crash or potentially code execution through memory modification. Yarn also found uh, that it was possible to perform side channel attacks because you could cause the extended BPF uh, machine to, to perform speculation on pointer arithmetic and the kind of thing that was we saw back in the original Spectre attacks. Now, this is uh, in general mitigated when secure boot is enabled because we ship the lockdown patches and this blocks BPF program loading in that case. But yeah, pretty cool bug. And finally, found a reference counting race condition in the kernel virtual machine subsystem, which would lead to a use after free and a crash for the VM guest. A number of other uh, CVEs here that were fixed for the kernel include a use after free and therefore an oops in the IPMEI uh, subsystem due to a race condition on restarting. There was a memory leak on the error path when uh, performing various read operations in the virtual file system layer, leading to a denial of service, obviously due to you know, leaking heaps of memory. There's a use after free in uh, the SCTP protocol on send message, so a local user might be able to trigger that for a crash or possible code execution. There was also a use after free in the AFALG family due to a failure to uh, null various structure members. Now, this was originally classified as a remote uh, executable vulnerability uh, by uh, NVD, but uh, yeah, AFALG is actually the uh, address family for doing uh, cryptographic uh, operations via the socket API uh, on a local kernel. So it's not something that's able to be used in a remote context. It's used by a local user to access that crypto API. So yeah, this wasn't a remotely triggerable vulnerability, only a local user. But again, you know, I use after free, so uh, a nice vulnerability to have in the kernel if you can leverage it, but certainly not something that was able to be triggered uh, remotely as it was initially classified. There was also an info leak and a use after free in KVM when using nested virtualization. Uh, in general, this is not enabled by default in Ubuntu kernels. However, if you had installed QMU, so I guess if you were actually using this, uh, then this does get enabled automatically. Uh, so yeah, they've been fixed. And finally, we had two different information leaks uh, of various heap memory structures within the Bluetooth subsystem that were able to be triggered by an unauthenticated remote attacker who basically just had Bluetooth access. Uh, and back in episode 20, we mentioned a use after free in the also USB sound device handling. Uh, and so that's also been fixed as well for this kernel too. We've got an update for the kernel in uh, Bionic and therefore the kernel that's backported as hardware enablement for Trusty and Xenial. Uh, this was 12 different CVEs here. Uh, this included 10 of those that I mentioned just previously, plus a couple more, which was a potential host uh, system crash and possible code execution from a malicious guest uh, for uh, when using KVM on ARM64. And I'd previously mentioned this back in episode 12. And also there was a failure to properly initialize all the elements of an error handling callback if you were using Zen. And this would allow the guest VM crash to be triggered by an unprivileged attacker within the guest VM. So that's been fixed too. 
We've got 20 CVUs here, so a fair few that were fixed for the uh, Xenial kernel and therefore the trusty hardware enablement kernel when that gets backported. Uh, two of these were, uh, denial of services, were denial of service issues that were able to be triggered by root, so you know, not high priority stuff, but they've been fixed. There was uh, use after free in uh, when using PPP over L2DB and also use after free in NFS uh, 4.1 plus when using multiple network namespaces, so they've been fixed. Uh, there was four different null pointer dereferences in the ButterFS file system uh, that were discovered through fuzzing that have been fixed. Uh, there was also a race condition and various invalid reads uh, when mounting a malicious F2FS image if you're using that file system. And plus, this also includes a heap of the CVs I just mentioned previously, things like the MAP min address bypass or the Bluetooth uh, info leaks and the KVM issues. So all of those have been fixed as well. And to wrap up our kernel updates, we've got an update for the kernel in uh, Trusty and therefore the precise ESM hardware enablement kernel. Eight different CVs here and these are a mix of all the various things that I've just mentioned. And so for if you want more details on those, you can go and check out uh, the Ubuntu security notices for those or even the show notes because we list all of the CVEs that were fixed there with links to all the details within the Ubuntu CVE tracker and more. Okay, so uh, for this week's discussion with Joe, uh, Joe and I had a chat about supply chain attacks, and in particular, uh, the recent Asus Shadowhammer supply chain attack. And we wanted to kind of talk a bit more about how this relates to Ubuntu, because uh, in the proprietary Windows world, uh, where this Asus attack happened, you know, things are a bit different, and obviously this is an Ubuntu security podcast, so we wanted to kind of bring this back to the Ubuntu context, so that you know people could understand a bit more how that relates to Ubuntu and how Ubuntu users are affected by these types of things or not, as it may be the case. So Joe, we're going to talk uh, supply chain attacks this week. Supply chain attacks, that'll be awesome. What yeah. are we going to talk about? Is it the one that's in the news right now? Yeah, so there was this recent story about uh, ASUS getting done. And uh, what I like about this story, um, well, obviously I don't like it as such as, you know, it's horrible that this happened. But um, what's interesting about it from a technical point of view is it looks like they've kind of compromised at a number of different levels. Um, yeah, so what happened was that uh, the ASUS update utility uh, basically installed this, this new update that contained a backdoor. And the way they did this uh, was that they were able to correctly sign this, you know, this new update as being from ASUS. So somehow they've compromised their signing server and then they were able to upload it to you know, their distribution server so that all the clients pulled it down. That, that's interesting because they had to have failures on just multiple levels, right? So as you said, they compromised the signing server. Then they compromised the, however, whatever server lets them upload these things as well. So it, it seems like just multiple layers of failure. And I wonder, I wonder how this happened if it was something as simple as like uh, going to LinkedIn and figuring out who, uh, who could sign those keys, who was a domain admin, something like that, and then phishing them. I'm not really, I mean, I wonder how this happened or if they were all yeah. insecure. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, or yeah, did they get in? Did, were they able to just compromise their network, you know, entirely, right? So they had access to everything and they could, you know, get free reign. Who knows? Yeah. It sounds, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? It would make you wonder uh, from their point of view, as in that incident response team, uh, they would have been working overtime. Yeah. It's a really neat one, too, because if, if you look at like 
a few, uh, it, was, it was more than a few years ago, but there was this really neat attack at Sony where w what they did was they compromised, it was Sony Pictures, they compromised Sony Pictures um, attackers and they pushed out a GPO, so a group policy object. I know this is a, a Linux podcast, but still, they pushed out a GPO and it basically installed their malware, which erased all the machines um, and stole personal data. Um, all through their built-in automation framework, right? And so this is neat because it went from a, a single domain, if you will, to everybody that ever purchased this machine. So, I mean, you gotta give credit to the attackers. They're being highly efficient. Yeah, uh, and it's, it is interesting that we kind of build these, you know, we, we build systems that are designed to essentially auto-update, right? Um, that will, their whole job is to pull down software updates and install them. So it's obviously a very neat uh, avenue to get your, you know, your malware onto a machine, assuming you can compromise that, that process. You know, you don't need to say directly compromise that utility. You know, find some buffer overflow in the, you know, the update utility itself and make it do something it wasn't meant to do. It's doing exactly what it's meant to do, right? And you're just piggybacking on it because you've broken the process. You've kind of got in at the side of it. Yeah, and and what what else is interesting about that is, do you, do you think as a result? Do you imagine they've put in multiple controls? Like I think the the example from the past is you'd go to launch a, a nuclear bomb and you'd have two people with you know they take their keys out of their special metal briefcases and both turn them right. So now I'd hope at least multiple people have to approve updates that are getting pushed out to everyone who's ever purchased an Asus laptop. I mean, I, I think would would, it, would it Spider Man tell us with, with great power comes great responsibility? That's yeah. also that's also great responsibility to build really secure systems. I mean, it's also easy with us looking in hindsight to say these problems, but I mean, th when you're building a system that can do something like this, that's all powerful. Think about the attack vectors. Think about if you, I, I always like to think if you were an attacker, what what would you want to do with this, and and how could it be exploited, and then think about controls you could put in to prevent that. So this is an interesting one. I mean, they they signed everything. They they did it right. Um, and uh, Alex, uh, I know you've been featured in, in, in Forbes talking about this, but uh, uh, how could you, uh, how could Ubuntu help prevent something like this? Well, it's interesting, actually, Joe, that you, you say with, um, it's about designing the system to be secure, right? And so um, for Ubuntu, I guess we're being an open source uh, distribution, uh, we're a bit different than, say, the Asus case or others where uh, a lot of the software we're shipping comes from third parties. You know, we aren't directly writing that software, right? Whereas at least Asus, maybe, you know, they are writing the code that is, you know, being distributed onto their machine so they can probably think, oh, all right, we, we don't need to vet that. We just need to, you know, make sure that it's uh, the, the installer is, you know, correctly verifying that it came mm -hmm. from us, right? Um, but in our case, yes, we've, you know, we're assembling a heap of third-party software and uh, that comes to us by way of Debian. So we are, um, you know, we have a huge community there of people in the Debian community that are already kind of got their eyeballs on this code. So we have some, you know, trust um, in them, but also from them that we can leverage. But then, uh, you know, in Ubuntu, we have two separate or two main parts of the repository. There's main and there's universe. So everything that is in main is supported by Canonical and that includes getting security updates. And so that means that uh, us as the security team, we have um, you know, done a review of almost all the code that's in main um, for security, you know, if it has a security impact and as to then you know, how kind of maintainable is that from a security point of view. So we've at least given that a bit of a cursory look to make sure that you know, there's nothing glaringly obvious or, you know, any any glaring problems and along the way we've found uh, a bunch of different issues when we've done that kind of stuff you know even recently um 
uh, our own Chris Coulson, uh, he was reviewing uh, the libssh2 package and found a number of issues that have now been you know fixed by upstream due to his code review. And you know he's found other things in systemd. So you know we're regularly finding things and fixing them as we go. Uh, so yeah, we've got eyes as well on that that code too. Uh, plus then when you actually look at how Ubuntu works, uh, only a select set of individuals can push software updates. You know, can actually push new code into the repositories. And, and, and all those people are uh, all those actions to push are 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 protected by multiple factors of authentication. So we have that in as well, which hopefully Asus did, but I would assume with a hack like this, they, they probably didn't, didn't, but hopefully everybody who can push out software is hopefully reviewing um, their process and procedure. But what you're talking about, Alex, is interesting because there has to be an endless number of um, uh, Stack Overflow or Stack Exchange and, and Reddit threads about what's more secure, open source or closed source. Um, and, and, and I mean, Obviously, I, I think as an open source person, open source is more secure because you have more eyes on it. It's not that black box. It also presents an opportunity to allow people to try to put something into the code by becoming a member of the community and um, and, and pushing in code. But you also have the community of reviewers to look at that before it makes it upstream. So there's that built-in gating. Um, so it, it, my impression, open source is, is, is more secure, but... You know that is that's I think it's it's debatable. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, I, as a you know, a long time uh, open source advocate and developer myself, you know I would always like to believe open source is more secure. But I can understand the arguments um, that say that you know when you've got uh, software coming out of you know proprietary um, software shops who you know are maybe taught secure software development practices so maybe you know they are they better engineers that could be that could be the case because in open source you've often got a lot of hobbyists who are doing things kind of on their spare time or to scratch an itch and is the code they're writing as good quality who knows right that's that is totally debatable uh although actually uh so coverity uh they release uh, a yearly report uh, comparing the state of open source and proprietary and my rigor collections they usually find about the same level of defects uh, per lines of code in both proprietary and open source code bases i think there's not usually a huge um, deviation between the two so that is encouraging at least um, and like you said there are more eyeballs generally on open source code the, Although- the question then comes is anyone actually looking uh, that that's debatable we know in ubuntu that people do look and we at least have that um yeah and yeah. i'd also even add though that you know you said something that a lot of hobbyists are adding code too but you know I, I think if you look at the raw number of lines of code that are contributed to like the linux kernel it, it's by companies like our own like like canonical and others who are who are contributing a bulk of that code so open source is a neat i'll say um intersection of of hobbyist people who are doing this on the side as well as enterprises because you know linux is everywhere so it's got a lot of different people looking at it so it's not a hundred percent hobbyist or industrial it, it is both um but we and, and then speaking the training people on secure coding you know that's an interesting one because it, it's it's an interesting depending upon what shop you're in the level of attention that's paid to security tends to tends to fluctuate greatly some people, that's part and parcel of their DNA, and it's what makes them secure. And some people think, well, we're not a target. And unfortunately, it doesn't matter if you think you're a target. You are a target because your software is out there. 
yeah, I think certainly that security mindset uh, has to be, and you said it earlier, you know, when you're building a system, you know, you really do need to consider how can this be used uh, against me or how can this be attacked? Uh, not so much just how do I make this work, you know, or do what I think it's meant to do. It's more like what, what can an attacker leverage this thing to do that it wasn't meant to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think it's all interesting. And I think when you think of this, this supply chain attack, which we're talking about, it's also interesting that this goes into physical supply chains too. Like, you know, you look at the target hack from a few years back and what was that? That was a third party HVAC vendor that got hacked. They got on their network and they traversed over to the, um, the point of sale systems at target. So, um, supply chain isn't just a software supply chain. Um, it's, it's all sorts of supply chain. So you always have to think about security through your whole ecosystem, whether it's, you know, who's making your box, who's making your, your software, or who's doing third-party support for your in enterprise. Yeah. No, whether it's that's an HVAC um, enterprise or something else. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, it's, you know, it is a huge landscape, you know, uh, security all the way down, I guess. <laughs> cool. Well, I think, um, I think we've uh, beat this horse. No worries. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks again for talking, Joe. This was really cool. I'll talk to you again another week. Cool. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Joe, for talking to me. That was great. Okay, so just to finish things off, we are still hiring. The Ubuntu security team is looking for an Ubuntu security generalist and a robotic security engineer. And I've talked about each of these uh, roles in previous episodes and we've gone on for a bit in this episode. So I won't go into detail here, but I've got links for both those jobs in the show notes. And I urge you, if you're interested, please apply. We would love to have you on board with our team. And finally, as usual, if you would like to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at security@ubuntu.com. Or you can find us hanging out in the Freenode IRC network on the Ubuntu Harden channel. Or you can even get us on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec. So yeah, please get in touch and let us know your thoughts on Ubuntu security and more. Okay, so thanks again for listening. A longer episode this week, uh, but I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, as usual, remember, keep calm and enable automated upgrades. And I will speak to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.